Genesis chapter 1. You can find that one. Started Genesis last week and we got all the way through one verse. But what a joy it is to just realize we went all the way through the scriptures. Now we're starting them again. And last week we looked extensively at how God declares himself as creator. Our pre-existing God boldly announcing to the world, I am everlasting God. I created the heavens and the earth. And that's that. In the first verse there, we have God saying he created, and he uses a Hebrew word, bara. And that means to speak into existence from nothing. However, Genesis 1.1 is not when God created what we call spirit beings, angels, and so forth. The angelic host, in my humble opinion, are already existing when God tells us that he created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1.1. In the book of Job, there's an interesting verse, and it reads, Angels witnessing God's creation of the material world, or quote-unquote, the heavens and the earth. So there was angels who witnessed God's creation. But verse 2, and we'll spend quite a bit of time on verse 2 this morning, it causes a lot of speculation. It causes a lot of pondering by Bible scholars or anyone who really studies God's Word. It, uh, it, it brings up usually as many questions as it does answers. And let me try to explain what I mean. But first, let's read the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, many Bible scholars, they subscribe to what we call a gap theory. The founder of Calvary Chapels, Chuck Smith, he happens to be one of them. He goes along with a gap theory. And the gap theory is simply they believe there's a time gap between verses 1 and 2 in Genesis 1. Their thinking is God did not create anything void or without a good purpose. And in verse 2 you see... Uh, that the, ver the world was uh, without form and void. But verse 2, for, the, for a lot of scholars, we have what we call the time gap. Whether it be long or whether it be short is not really uh, that important. But there is apparently a time gap between the two verses. Because we see in verse 2, God's judgment is upon Satan and the earth. 
And they're thinking, the gap theorists think, that the world became void and without form. And there is some scriptural evidence for this, for the casting down by God of Satan. Ezekiel 28, verse 16, I'll read it for you. By the abundance of your trading, speaking of Satan, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. We read that Satan was filled with violence, through or within the abundance of trading or the multitude of merchandising in the old King James. God sees the sin of Satan. God will not allow sin to exist in his heaven. So God casts Satan down to earth out of heaven. God pronouncing upon Satan really his eternal judgment upon Satan's rebellion. And it's at this casting down of Satan that the earth became void. So the question becomes, what was Satan's abundance of trading? What was his multiple merchandising? What's that all about? What was his quote-unquote deal-making that he's going through? What was Satan attempting to secure with all this trading and dealing and so forth? Well, for one thing, we know that when Satan fell, a third of the angels fell with him. It's what they call the angelic host that fell with him or came down. Now, this is pure speculation on my part. So don't leave here and say, Don said scripture. No, no. I'm purely speculating. I believe the deal making, the merchandising that Satan is doing, I think he's simply promising positions of authority to certain angels if they will align themselves with him in his rebellion against God. What else does he have to offer? These other angels, though even the ones that fell, knew God was God. He had to sway them somehow to follow them. And I think he offered them positions, his merchandising. And obviously, through his merchandising, he has persuaded other angels to align themselves with him. So again, in my humble opinion, this demonic host are cast down with Satan to the earth there in verse 2. You may want to turn over to Isaiah. I'm going to have several references in the book of Isaiah. And we'll start with Isaiah 14. And we'll look at verses 12 through 15. And uh, there's other similar passages. But Isaiah 14 Verse 12, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning, how you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. 
For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation of the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. To me, these verses describe Satan's fall. Satan is cut down. He is reduced in his influence and in his position. And reading this passage, we see that Satan was lifted up in pride because we hear him saying, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation. I will ascend and be like the Most High. But God has an answer for Satan. And in verse 15, God says, You shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths or the pit. And those that do subscribe to what I call the gap three believe this is when Satan was cast down to the earth, the earth that became void and without form by Satan being cast down to it. Our scripture reading this morning, Isaiah 45, 18, is one of the strongest supporting verses for a gap theory. Isaiah 45, 18, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited, I am the Lord, and there is no other. God, who created the heavens, who formed the earth and established it, did not create it in vain or void, but he created the earth to be inhabited. And these verses appear to point to a time of destruction of Satan's environment where God cast him down to the earth and the earth became void and without form or basically there was no order on the earth at this time. Darkness covered the face of the waters and so there's a gap there for many of these where God cast Satan out of heaven down to earth. Is that the way it happened? I say possibly. <laughs> I don't much, you know, care one way or the other, really. But there are some who have to reconcile every dotted I and every cross T. And to them, to that person, a gap theory makes a lot of sense. For me, it's a mute point. Because in verse 3, we see God exercising one of his, what I call, main characteristics. We see him exposing his very nature by not only being creator, but being redeemer. Redeeming a fallen world. Bringing beauty and order from void darkness and chaos. And any and each and every one of us, I should say, any of us can see that very truth in our own life. All you have to do is think back like you were before you became a Christian. 
or as we say, B.C. But to see our Lord Jesus redeem and how redemption is that great and good quality about God. Back to Genesis. Let me read verses 3 through 5. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and darkness he called night. So the evening and morning were the first day. Let there be light, and there was light. God says of the light, it's good. Our Redeemer, in one of his very first acts of creation, is redemption, is to bring light to darkness and chaos. This is not when God ignited our son's nuclear fusion. This is not when that happened. Not when God set our world in rotation or in orbit around the sun. For we see that the sun and moon have not even been created yet. That's still several days away. But Jesus tells us how he brought forth light. He spoke it into existence. Let there be light. But how about stars? Some thousands of light years away. That's mind-boggling. And some of these stars, they may have already burned out. And all we're seeing is their light that is traveling towards us. Isaiah chapter 34 Isaiah speaks of the host of heaven, the planets, and the stars being rolled up like a scroll. How does our Lord roll up light that is emanating from stars that are millions of light years away? How does he roll them up like a scroll? And others that are only perhaps a few days away or a few hours away with their light, and yet at the same moment, he rolls it all up like a scroll. Well, by simply declaring, be rolled up. That's how God does. Or maybe he says, stop shining. I don't know. But the one who spoke everything into existence, note this, he can and he will speak it out of existence. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. Light happens to be more than a physical substance. Jesus said in the gospel that he is the light of the world, spiritual and physical. In the book of Revelation, we have our Lord declaring that he will create a new heavens and a new earth. And there won't be a sun or a moon. God declares that he will be the light in this new heaven and new earth. The very same thing God did at the very beginning. In the very beginning of a creation, we find God saying, I am the light. 
before the sun and the moon are created. It's interesting to note that in the plagues that Moses uh, spoke by the, uh, by God when he pronounced them upon Egypt, darkness was one of the plagues. It was a darkness that was so tangible, so heavy, it was a darkness that could be felt, and it covered Egypt. Egypt suffered darkness as a plague, and it's interesting when you look back at their uh, society, they had made the sun one of their deities. They had made sunlight a deity, and yet Moses comes in there by the hand of God and he declares darkness to cover Egypt. Have you ever thought about what a refreshing source sunlight is each and every morning? Us farm boys get up early. We see the sun come up. It's beautiful. It's refreshing. Consider how beautiful colors are and how pleasing they are to the eye. Colors must have light to expose them. God has chosen light as one of the ways to express himself and express himself to mankind. In John 1.5, God says, I am the light. James 1.17, the father of lights. Psalm 104, God covers himself with a cloak of light. God alone, who possesses immortality, dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus, who is the image of the Father, he refers to himself as the light of men. Light happens to be tied to holiness in Scripture. It says, walk in the light. The psalmist, he writes, the Lord is my light and my salvation. It also uh, it says in Psalms that God is a lamp unto my feet. And notice, God calls darkness and light or evening and morning, and he calls it the first day. The first day. The first day before our sun and moon were created, apparently before the earth, our world, is set in motion, God has a day. For me, everything here is God recreating. And the word create is osa, or to create from previously formed matter. But he brings order to creation. Everything after verse 1. God appears here to set time in motion. Not according to the earth's orbit or rotation around the sun. Have you ever thought about that? How do we measure time? 
by the rotation of the earth. It's a constant in our thinking. But God sets time on a linear path, not by stars or planets, but by himself giving light and then dividing it and say, that's the first day. In the new heavens and in the new earth, God will remove all darkness or night when he illuminates everything in and of himself and time as we know it will cease. We will dwell with our eternal Lord and God. We use time to measure all that we know of. Even when we speak of time, we call it a gap theory of time between verses 1 and 2, where God's Spirit hovered over the face of the waters. But let me read verses 6 through 8 of Genesis 1. Then God said, Let there be firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament, and he divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and morning were the second day. What we have here is God creating a division of the waters, the seas from the clouds and the vapor. God creates atmosphere, if you will, and he sets it above the waters of the earth. Basically, God is creating a greenhouse climate that will exist, this vapor shroud around the earth, until the time of the flood. That happens to be an ideal environment for growth of plants and animals. Very little aging process goes on under this vapor that was originally created by God. And this is the second day. Then verses 9 through 13. Then God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herbs the, that yield seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herbs that yield seed according to its kind, and the trees that yield fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and morning were the third day. We have the third day. In note, God separates the waters by bringing forth land, plus plants and vegetation. But still, there is no source of light other than God himself. This happens to be very puzzling 
a very puzzling truth to a lot of scientists. We have here plant life older than our sun, which evolutionists say cannot happen. God says, well, it did. (laughs) The truth that plant life is pre-sunlight boggles an evolutionist mind. They can't comprehend that. An evolutionist, to make things plausible, they have to throw a lot of time and fortuitous chance. Have you ever heard that one? Fortuitous chance. They have to throw in a lot of time and fortuitous chance to begin to make their theories of evolution even begin to seem believable. But we have an age-old question answered in verse 11 here, and you may have heard this question. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, well, grass and herbs and fruit trees whose seed is within itself. The chicken came first to answer that question. (laughs) But fully mature life has in it the seeds of reproduction, the ability within itself to reproduce. And God is pleased with that. He's pleased with his creations. And he says of it, plant life is good. And every time we plant a flower or a tree and it takes root and it grows, we too as believers, we proclaim it's good. Now, I was a tree farmer in California. You thought I was always just a pretty face that preached to you. But no, I used to work for a living. As a tree farmer, I would plant orchards, hundreds of trees. And to see them take root and to see them grow was extremely rewarding. Just to watch something grow, just to see sunlight and water and climate, just, you know, God's creation causing a tree to grow and to understand That creation of God, back when he created plant life, it's still functioning today. It brings pleasure to a little old country boy like myself. I love to watch things simply grow. And one of man's greatest pleasures is to see God's built-in plan of reproduction, of plant life and animal life. These capabilities functioning all around us. Recently, within the last few years, I decided to start raising my own beef. Huge herds. (laughs) but brought a bull in got my heifers pregnant 
they delivered their first calf in January, both of them, 10 days apart. I had a cattleman say, well, did you watch your heifers? I go, no. He says, well, what if they had trouble giving birth? I said, they better not. (laughs) I didn't even know to watch them. He says, you're fortunate. He says, you don't have to watch them so much after they have their first calf. I said, that's good. (laughs) I didn't even know you're supposed to watch them. But I have two healthy calves, so I'm happy. And I think as a Christian, as a believer... We have much greater appreciation of nature than any evolutionist. Because I look at it and I see God's plan. I look at it and I see my creator, the Lord I worship, causes all things to work together good. For a Christian knows the designer. He knows the designer of life. And he glorifies the designer. We give praise to Jesus who makes all things good. Nature and its reproduction of plant and animal life is fascinating. I, when my calves were born, it was coldest day of the year. They always, I don't know why they choose that, but they do. I went back in the house and I was excited to tell my wife, hey, we got a calf. Big deal. It's just one more cowboy. But to me, it was a big deal. And it pleased me greatly that my Lord has set such things in motion as reproduction of animal life and plant life. So, for you city folks, To appreciate the beautiful colors of flowers, green pastures, flowing rivers or streams, is to appreciate our God and our Creator. Not that we're to worship creation, but we are to worship the Creator. And for me, that is a great pleasure. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, it is a joy as part of your creation to appreciate you as my creator and the creator of all that is around us. We thank you, Lord, for loving us. We thank you for being a good God. We thank you for setting things in order, Lord. Simple things like a flower blooming or a calf being born. You're an awesome God. And so, Lord, let us look upon your creation and not worship your creation, but worship you, the creator. For you are Lord and our God and our maker. And we appreciate you and give you our allegiance here this morning. And so help us, Lord, by your spirit to just have that thankful heart. And we pray and ask for this in your name, Jesus. Amen.